We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, if you'll find your place there. We are uh, in the genealogy of Jesus uh, over a couple of weeks here as we take a closer look at a list that sometimes probably when you read the Christmas story, you might just kind of buzz right through that part, right? And so um, in, in, in Luke's gospel, we don't get a genealogy till chapter 3, but Matthew gives it to us um, at the very beginning of his book as it leads into the great Christmas story that we read so often. And it is a very important part of the Christmas story. So that's where, why we're taking a little time, as we introed it last week, uh, to spend some time on this. And uh, so this week and next week, we're going to really park in Matthew chapter 1. And you might ask, what can you learn from a list of names? If you've ever um, read through your Bible, Bible, you see there's a lot of lists of names in the Bible. Have you noticed that? Old Testament especially, a lot of lists of names. And Noah begot, and so-and-so begot, and so-and-so begot. And then you get here to the beginning of the New Testament, and you think, oh great, glad I'm done with all the list of names. And then Matthew says, well, let's start with a list of names. And so the New Testament begins with a list of names. And, but you can learn a lot from a list of names. For instance, when you go to a war memorial in somewhere like Washington, D.C., and you see a list of names, um, those aren't just letters and those aren't just names. That is tied to a person who lived a life and who, who had a story. And they are connected to other people and their stories. And there's a story of how they ended up in the war and how, the role they played, how they died, how their sacrifice impacted their family their, and even our nation. And lists of names are important wherever you may find them because names are tied to people and people are tied to other people. And so when you see something like this uh, in the Bible, while there might be a temptation to just kind of not think deeply about it, um, God is communicating something through, through this list of names that is very important for us. Now, In particular, genealogies, which is what we have here in Matthew chapter 1, are a whole other thing because genealogies tell us what? How we came to be, right? We all have a family tree, a list of people that tell a story of how you and I came into existence. Now, I remember as a kid, I had a friend who swore up and down uh, that the infamous cowboy outlaw Jesse James was in his family tree. And I remember thinking, man, I don't know if I'd tell a lot of people that. Um, but he, man, he was so proud of that. I don't know if it was true or not, um, but he, that he, man, he liked talking about that. And I remember uh, as, as a kid finding books at my grandparents' house that could trace back. Somebody had written, trace back all the, you know, uh, people in the family tree. No Jesse James in mind. I'm sure there was some, some, some some crooked limbs on the tree because every family tree has that, right? Um, we're all just a bunch of sinners who have come down from a bunch of sinners, and that's all of our stories. And, but here's the thing. These things are important because with us, they tell us how we came to be. Now, with the Son of God, his genealogy doesn't tell us how he came to exist. He's always existed, but the family tree of the Son of God is even a bigger deal because at a moment in time, the Son of God took on human flesh. And so talks about tells us a little bit um, how he came to be a man. But in particularly, the, the, what this family tree does that we're going to be looking at, it's not a biological family tree of Jesus. Um, this is Joseph's family tree that we have in Matthew chapter 1. And we know Jesus um, was not biologically related to Joseph. Joseph is like his adoptive dad. But what Jesus does ha- have is he has... He has the legal right to what Joseph has the legal right to. And what you learn in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 is that Joseph has, is descended from David. He has legal right to the throne. And Jesus, as his legal heir, has legal right to the throne of David. And so that's why we have this 
genealogy here in Matthew chapter 1 is because Matthew in his gospel wants to show us that Jesus is the king of Israel, that he's the king of kings, that he is the Messiah, and he is the son of David, and so he has to give us this genealogy uh, to show us that that is, is true. But this family tree is unique. It tells us something about God that he chose to place his son, yes, into a family, but into a family with this particular lineage, and that he chose to give us these particular names because not everybody in the, in the lineage is, is, is in the list, but only it, it skips generations and things. He's, we'll talk a little bit about that here in a, here in a minute, but, but there are famous people that are listed. There are infamous people that are listed. There are people with very checkered past that are listed. There are some women listed, which was highly unusual in that day. You did not list women in genealogies. They did not do that, but there's like five in this one. And so, and their placement is important. It shows us that they're key figures and there's certain things God wants to teach us. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I want us to see how from Jesus' family tree, we can learn something this week about the faithfulness of God. Um, we're going to talk next week about the grace of God. This week, we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God that we can see from the genealogy of Jesus. So what I want to do is we're going to kind of read the bookends this morning. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff in the middle. So look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read that. Then we're going to skip down and we're going to read the last part of the genealogy, verse 17, which is kind of a summation for us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And those titles, those, those things are very important. And then when you skip down to verse 17, Matthew says, So all the generations, after he's given these generations, he says, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And that's how he, you see the 14, 14, 14, and, and this genealogy is, that, that, that he bookends for us here, and this list of names where he starts with, he goes, he talks about Abraham, and then he leads us to, to David, and then from David he leads us to the deportation to Babylon, and then all the way up to Joseph, who he says was the husband of Mary and the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, you know, the, this genealogy teaches us that, first of all, when, a very important thing, which is Jesus was a real historical person, okay, that lived a real life and had a real family. And that's an important thing, right? There, there, there are people that even today would say, well, Jesus was just a legend. And, and he's given us a list of names. He's given us a genealogy, much like when you get over to Matthew, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and the Apostle Paul gives us a list of names of people that saw him raised from the dead. And he basically says, and there was like over 500 people. What is he saying? He says, hey, go look them up. Go talk about them. And Matthew here saying he's a real person rooted in real history, that, that, that God has entered human history and that the Son of God has lived and died and risen again and, and that he was a part of a real family with a real mom and dad, an adoptive dad and, and that he was born of a virgin that Matthew will get into that a little bit later. And the Bible is very blunt here with the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't, as we've mentioned, he doesn't gloss over the scandalous people. It's very honest and real. He, he lists the good kings and he lists the bad kings. It's all in there. Now, if you were to do a study on the genealogies of Jesus and you were to go read Matthew chapter 1 and then you were to flip over to Luke chapter 3, you would notice something that might alarm you. <laughs> that is, they are different. They're, they're, there are all sorts of different names in there. They are, they are different genealogies in a sense. And there's reasons for that. Luke starts with Mary and Joseph and works backwards all the way back to Adam. Matthew starts with Abraham and works down to Joseph. 
When you get to David and Matthews, from David to Joseph and Mary, the two lists are different. When you get to David and either list and you compare, the, the, the lists change after David. Uh, Matthew goes from David to Solomon and Luke goes from David to Nathan. Now, you say, why is this? Uh, we can't, there's a couple of reasons why it could be. It's hard for us to say which one for sure it is. Here are the possibilities. One, Matthew... Um, is Joseph's, some people would say, and Luke is actually Mary's genealogy. So that, that, that's a long-held popular opinion, but uh, we can't say that with certainty, but, it, but, it's, uh, but it's possible. Um, and that, that Luke, who, who um, lists um, Mary's father there, that some believe that, um, that he would have maybe ad- ad- adopted Joseph as his heir. Um, and that that would be why Joseph's name is listed there. Another option here is that Matthew could focus on the legal, as he does, we've talked about, and the royal lineage of Jesus to the throne, while Luke focuses on the human ancestry. For instance, um, Heli could be Joseph's biological father, and he could have died, and Joseph could have, uh, Jacob, excuse me, could have married Joseph's mom. So you see Jacob and Matthew listed as Joseph's dad, a different individual listed over in Luke, and it could be that his biological father dies, he's a, his mother remarries, he has an adoptive father, and so he has an ancestral line linked to the throne of David, and one that's more biological, showing his, in, in, he, in Luke, showing that link all the way back to Adam, is highlighting the fact that Jesus is the, is the Savior that all mankind needs, and Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the King that Israel needs, that he is the, that he is the Messiah. Now, both of these options are possible. What we do know is that Joseph would have been Jesus, Joseph, Mary's husband, would have been Jesus' adoptive father, and Jesus would have the rights and privileges of Joseph's line. And that's what Matthew, here in the genealogy that we're in, is, is highlighting for us. But it's just so interesting to see how God chose the family he chose for the Messiah, especially given some of the possibilities here with these two um, genealogies. Now, If you look down at verse 17 that we read, um, it says there's 14 generations, right? From uh, all the generations from Abraham to David, what, 14? And then David to deportation, 14. And deportation to the Christ, 14. Now, what's going on here? Why the listing of 14, 14, 14? It seems likely that Matthew has written in a way to help with memorization and to center the genealogy on David. Because he wants to highlight that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David. So David kind of stands at the center to draw attention to the genealogy. There was a Jewish practice at the time uh, where they would ascribe ascribe numbers to to consonant letters and every letter had a number value. And it was something that they would do a lot of times with poetry and things like that and that you could add up the number value and uh, and they would have a value all together. Each consonant had a value and then you would add them all up together. Now, David's consonants are D, V, D, right, in our language, uh, which are four, six, and four. And those, you add them up and what do you get? You get 14. And so you got 14 generations, 14 generations, and right in the middle you've got David, D, V, D, 14. And so the whole point of all of this is he's centering the genealogy on David and he's highlighting the fact, and that's why he's highlighting these 14 generations, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus is the rightful heir to David. But when you really kind of step back and look at this and you see how he's done this and how God has worked in each of these time periods, because he highlights three time periods. He highlights the patriarchs, right, Abraham to David. He highlights uh, the kings, 
starting with David. And then he highlights a whole different season called the deportation to Babylon up into the Christ. And what he's showing us in these things is he's showing us the faithfulness of God throughout all of this in bringing forward the Messiah. He's also showing us some things about the grace of God that we're going to look at next week with some of the individual individuals he includes in this. So let me show you three things that we can know about the faithfulness of God from the genealogy of Jesus this Christmas season, all right? Number one, God is faithful to keep his promises. The first thing we learn from the genealogy of Jesus is that God is always faithful to keep his promises. You see there in verse 1, three titles for Jesus. We have Christ, which also means Messiah or anointed one. We see son of David and son of Abraham, right? And so the son of David being a reference for the Messiah connected to the throne of David because God had given David a promise of an heir that would rule and reign forever. Son of Abraham was a reference to the line of Abraham because God had also given Abraham a promise, right? And so he's highlighting in this genealogy that God has kept his promise to Abraham and that God has kept his promise to David, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God keeping his promises to these great uh, individuals in, in Israelite history. Uh, God gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis twenty two eighteen. He says, in your, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, the Apostle Paul helps us to interpret what that means in Galatians three sixteen. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words... What the Apostle Paul is telling us in Galatians is that in Genesis twenty two eighteen, when God gives a promise to Abraham and says, in your offspring, right, all the earth should be breast in your offspring, he's talking about one particular offspring. Not several offspring, but one particular one. He's pointing to the Messiah. And so Matthew is highlighting for us that Jesus is that son of Abraham, that he is that offspring who has come through which all the nations shall be blessed through faith in him. And so in Genesis 12, when you read the story of Abraham, you see God calling him out and him making these promises. And then Abraham's life is filled with trial, it's filled with difficulty. Then you get his sons and, and you get, go through their life. And you, you read through the patriarchs from Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And, and you read all kinds of trouble and problems and difficulty and pain and difficult things that they went through. And what we're seeing here is some... All this time later, as we read this genealogy from a couple of thousand years ago, we look at it, we see God's faithfulness to Abraham. But we also see God's faithfulness to David. In 1 Samuel 7, 16, it says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promised David, your throne's going to be established forever before me. There's going to be a sense in which... Your throne is going to go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The Messiah comes through the line of David so that in that sense, David's throne, one of his descendants, occupies the throne forever because Jesus is forever the king of kings. In Jeremiah 23.5, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
That's a prophecy from Jeremiah 23.5. So God made a promise that the throne of David would be established forever and ultimately that the Messiah would come through David's line. And in Jesus, what we have is the true and rightful heir to David's throne. As Jeremiah calls him, the righteous branch, the one who will rule and reign wisely, the one who will bring justice and righteousness into the world. And so in Jesus, we see God keeping his promises to David. We see God keeping his promises to Abraham, doing what he said he would do. And it teaches us an important principle when we read the genealogy is we, we see God keeping his word, right? And, and that's an important reminder for us that God keeps his promises, but not according to our expectations, right? I mean, there's a lot of things about the Messiah coming into the world that didn't live up to the expectations of some of the Jews in that day. Uh, God keeps his word and God keeps his promises, but, but God does not always operate according to our expectations. God does not keep promises that he does not make, right? God does not keep and hold the things that, that we try to hold him to, that promises that he never made to us. Like I've learned with our kids that you have to be careful of what you say, right? So if I tell my kids, hey, we're going to do this later or we may do this later, I've learned I have to really emphasize may right? Because they, they, they've got like, you know, they'll bring the transcribe out, right? And the, 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 the whole document. And it's like, you said, right? You said that we were, I said, well, I said may. And they didn't hear may. I said, we might. I said, so I have to really almost get it in writing now uh, because they want to kind of hold you to the fire, right? Kind of deal. Here's the deal. Sometimes with God, Christians can, we, we get a little offended and we get, we get down and we get doubtful, and we get discouraged because God's not operating according to our expectations. And many times what we're trying to do is we're trying to hold God to something that God never said. Uh, we're holding him to promises that, that, that he didn't promise, right? He didn't promise his life would be easy. He didn't promise us that nobody would ever let us down. He didn't promise us that, that, that we'd never have a difficult time at work or that we wouldn't have a difficult time with our family. He didn't promise us that we wouldn't go through uh, bad health seasons or bad financial seasons. He, he didn't promise us any of those things. But many times, people want to point the finger at God. And really what, we, what, we're, what, we're, what we're doing is we're holding on to expectations of how we want God to perform in our lives as opposed to holding on to the promises of God. And what God and his promises do is they give us strength through go, so we can go through all those difficult things, not so that we can avoid them, right? And so the God, God's promises give us strength and they give us security in the midst of a troubled world. But I mean, I mean just look at Israel. Uh, if you were to go through, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about this here in a minute, but if you were to go through this lineage, I mean, there's just all kinds of different seasons recommended there. And what we see here is God keeps his promise to Israel. But he certainly didn't always do things just like Israel expected or Israel wanted. And we live in a broken world where people will use their word and their promises to get what they want, but they'll fail to come through on their word. In fact, people may even use their promise to simply manipulate to get what they want. People will lie and people will fail and people will forget. But the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that not God, right? Not God. He keeps his promises. There's a reason we have contracts in our world. And we ask people to sign on the dotted line. You know why that is? We don't trust anybody, right? Because people have proven untrustworthy, right? And here God we know through his word enters into covenant with his people. It's amazing things. And God keeps his promise and he keeps his covenant. He doesn't break his word. And 
We need to remember this Christmas season that God will keep the promises of his word. The genealogy of Jesus reminds us that God does keep what he says he will do. So if we're lonely, we can remember that Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. If we're afraid, we can remember that 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If death is hanging over us or discouraging us, we can remember that Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life, and if we believe in him, though we die, we shall live. If we're feeling weak, in whatever way that might be, we can remember that 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul said, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The point is, what God has said he will do, he will do. And those are things in his word, those are promises we can cling to. And so when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we know God is faithful to keep his promises. Secondly, we know God is faithful in every generation. He's faithful in every generation. Look at the list of names there in your Bible. This list of generation after generation. It begins with Abraham and moves down to David, all the way down to, to Joseph. Generations come, came and went. People were born and people died. And God was faithfully working in each generation to accomplish his purposes. If you look at Matthew 1, 2 there, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And when you go through these names, starting with these patriarchs and moving to the kings, you'll see God's faithfulness in every generation. If you go back and study the Old Testament, study the stories connected to the names, you'll see the faithfulness of God and how the God of Abraham became the God of Isaac. And the God of Isaac became the God of Jacob and so on and so forth. And none of these characters listed here, other than the last name on the list, were perfect. Far from it. But God had a plan and he was faithful to work in the life of each generation. You know, all these people had unique stories. Some of these people on this list did some really bad things. I mean, some really bad things. Some of these people are heroes of the faith. Some of these people were good people that had bad and weak moments. But, but God was faithful, and he never gave up on keeping his promise to his people. And he worked in unique ways in each and every generation to accomplish what he was going to do. So it doesn't matter which time period you live in. God's at work and he's doing something to impact and affect that generation. Just as it was then, it's that way now, right? That God is still continuing to work. He worked in the previous generation and he works in this generation. He's going to work in the next generation because he's got a, a something that he's moving towards. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, what's God moving towards? He's moving towards the first advent. All of human history is being worked and to move towards the revealing of the Son of God being born in a manger, right? God becoming man, the, the, the whole Christmas story. That's what all those names are moving towards. All those stories are moving towards. But God's not done, right? There's a second advent. And one thing the first advent should remind us to do is to look forward to the second advent that the son who has come is going to return. And so God is working now in each and every generation towards something in particular, the return of his son. The return of his son. He's working towards a, a new heaven and a new earth. He's, he's working towards gathering in all of his children. God is moving and working in each and every generation all over the world to accomplish his purposes. Psalm 100, verse 5, great, uh, great passage says this, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Generation come, generation goes, God is faithful, he's at work to accomplish his mercies. Think about the stories of the genera each of these generations here in the genealogy, the stories they had to tell. 
So if you were to walk through it, you'd see one generation can tell how God had delivered them from famine by sending them to Egypt. Other generation would rise up and say, well, we experienced slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Another one says, well, we experienced deliverance from that slavery, and we passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. Another generation says, well, I remember when David was made king, and another recalls, well, I remember this evil king that we had. And But one constant that takes place in each and every generation is that God is faithful and he's working to accomplish his purposes, whether it be through evil kings or good kings or whatever's going on, whether it's while they're enslaved in Egypt or walking through on dry ground. But God is at work and he is moving and working in the lives of his people and he's using everything that's going on. Ultimately, he's going to use it in the end for, for his own purposes. And that nothing, no trial and no circumstances, no suffering, no nothing can thwart the plan of God. He's working in every generation. So even, even in this room or in our community, different generations are marked by different memorable moments. One generation says, you know, talks about World War II and the next talks about Vietnam and the moon landing and the assassination of John F. Kennedy and another is marked forever by 9-11 and, or that's the painful things or we talk about personal computers and then the rise of the internet and then the iPhone and all these different technologies and in the midst of each generation what we see is while different things are going on and different trials are going on and different difficulties are going on and different blessings have come or God is faithful God is working in each and every generation you may think this morning well I don't like the direction the world seems to be headed in well the world's been headed in the wrong direction for a long time Right? It's headed in the same direction that it was headed the moment Adam and Eve departed from the plan of God in the garden, right? It, it, it's headed towards sin, and it's headed towards, but it's also headed towards ultimately a date with God, right? Ultimately a date with God, and we know that God's got a plan and God is working. You say, but Pastor, I don't like some of the cultural and the morality issues that I see in our, even in our own nation, our own culture. Many times I see good things called bad things and bad things called good things, and I would agree with all that. But God is faithful to his people in each and every generation, no matter what's going on in the culture, no matter what's going on in the White House, no matter what's going on in the mayor's office, no matter what's going on at the state capitol, no matter what's going on over across the world, in each and every generation, God is faithful to his people. You know, and you'll hear people, man, they, I don't know how many times the obituary to the church has been written in human history, and every single time they write that obituary way too soon. God's church is going to be just fine, right? It's going to be just fine. And I don't know the kind of world or nation or culture that my children will raise their children in, but I do know that my God will be faithful to them if they'll follow Jesus, just like he's been faithful to me and he's been faithful to you. In every generation, people get saved the same way, right? <laughs> By looking to Jesus. God transforms their life. They, they can have the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. God is at work and he's moving in each and every generation. He's faithful to every generation. And thirdly, God is faithful in every circumstance. When you look at this list of names, it shows not only differing generations, but different seasons and circumstances in the life of Israel. As we talked about, the patriarchs from Abraham to David, the kings, David to the deportation, and then up until Jesus. And at times, Israel experienced great times, like we mentioned earlier, success in Egypt, but then slavery, right? And then deliverance, though. It's up and it's down, and they had good kings, and they had evil kings. And just looking at uh, chapter 1 here of Matthew, verses 6 through 11, you can see good and evil kings listed. They had times of great national unity, right? But they also, at one point, they split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. 
In every circumstance, though, God is working and God is moving and God has not abandoned them to their circumstance. I find it interesting that, that Matthew lists the deportation here and he mentions it purposely twice. That not just a name is listed, but an event in the history of Israel, Israel is noted here. He lists this idea of this deportation to Babylon. Let me read to you about this event because it's so significant that Matthew puts it in the genealogy twice. He puts it in the list and then he puts it in the summary. In 2 Kings 25 verses 8 through 11, we read about this deportation in Israel's history. It says, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. Verse 10, and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Verse 11, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So they march them out, right? They burn everything down and they take them, they, they, they take them into exile. They, they, they remove them from their land. He just leaves the poorest people there to take care of some, some vines and some, uh, to be vine dressers and plowmen so they could still reap harvests and things like that off the land. As Babylon has conquered Israel, here's the story we're getting in 2 Kings 25. And this event was so significant in the history of Israel that it's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus not once but twice. But if you'd imagine with me for a moment what that must have been like, you can think of how that marked the people of Israel. They were taken out of their land, a land God had promised them and given to them. They were taken to a foreign land. Just imagine if you were taken out of our nation, shipped off to another nation, right? It's a horrifying thought. And think about this. Israel was a nation that had seen God part the Red Sea for them. Imagine the things that they had seen in their history, and you grow up here and grandma and grandpa talk about all these great things God has done, but then in your generation, you get marched out to Babylon. It's kind of like, where's the Red Sea for me, right? I mean, it's, this is a trying, difficult, painful time, and God used Babylon and used this exile to discipline the nation. But to get a picture of how dire this season was, we need to read a psalm. Psalm 137 is written most likely looking back on that season. And this is what it says, Psalm 137. I'm gonna read verses one through six. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above as my highest joy. It was a dark season, and he's saying, how can we play music at a time like this? How can we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land, far from the land he promised us and gave us? They are distraught, and they're being mocked by their captors, right? Sing us one of those little songs that you sing in, you know, when you worship God. Sing us one of those little Israel songs that y'all sing. You know, those are cute. Sing one of those for us, right? And they're tormenting them. They're saying, how can we sing at a time like this? How can we, I don't want to sing here because I don't want to forget that I don't belong here. I belong there. Uh, we're, we're, God's going to take us back to our place. That's 
kind of what they're talking about. They're hanging on to the promises of God. And this circumstance in which God used the Babylonians to discipline his people, this circumstance in which the Israelites were treated with cruelty by the Babylonians and taken from home, it marked the nation of Israel for generations. It marked them for the life of the nation. It marked them to the point that Matthew notes it in the genealogy. But make no mistake, as bad as it was, God had not forsaken them. You say, well, how do you know? Because the genealogy keeps going. It doesn't end there. There's names before it, and there's names after it. So God's purposes that he, was, that he was working to accomplish did not even get thwarted by such a crazy circumstance as a nation conquering them and removing them from their land. God's still at work. The story's still been written. So I don't know your season of life, but I know God is faithful. The list of names is so much more than that. It's evidence of the faithfulness of God that no matter what you're going through, he will keep his promises, he will accomplish his purpose, he will accomplish his purposes in your life for his purposes and for his glory and for your good. So you don't need to believe the lie that the world, the flesh, and the devil want you to believe when you're in bad circumstances. God is at work. And God is present and his plan to make you like Jesus and his plan to bring you into his presence and to perfect you will be accomplished. And so don't let dire circumstances or painful circumstances get you thinking that God doesn't love you or that he has forgotten you or that he is not who he says he is, that he is not faithful. Just look at the genealogy of Jesus. Look at the life of Israel and you know God is faithful. And he'll bring you back to that place into that place that he has, he has for you. Ultimately, we're all moving towards what? The, the, the blessed hope. The blessed hope of, of the return of Christ and us being with him forever. And ultimately, we're going to stand in the land that God has promised us and we're going to sing forever, right? Ultimately, that, that is going to happen. We are all going to go through seasons just like they did where we don't feel like singing or we feel far away from God or we feel far away from this and that and we feel far away from, from where we used to be but God is working in our lives and, if, and ultimately he always brings us back to what he has promised. He will accomplish his promises and his purposes in our life. And while this life will be full of trouble just as the life of Israel was the, full of trouble ultimately God will fulfill his promises to us when Jesus returns just like he fulfilled his promise to Israel when he came the first time and this genealogy of our Lord Jesus shouts to us the faithfulness of God that he keeps his promises to every generation and in every circumstance and the story when you read through the genealogy it ends on a name the name of Jesus right who is called he says who is called the Christ it is he the final name on the list that is the ultimate picture of the faithfulness of God See, when, when we're unfaithful, when we were unfaithful, God sent Jesus. Whereas we have been faithless, Jesus lived faithfully. Where we have disobeyed God, Jesus obeyed God to the point that he went to the cross for you and me. And if the genealogy doesn't do it for you about the faithfulness of God, remember the genealogy points us to Jesus who points us to the cross, which declares to us that God is faithful. That Jesus was forsaken for you and me on the cross so that you and I would never have to be. We can experience the loving faithfulness of God forever because Jesus took the wrath and the judgment for us that we deserve. 
But God did not abandon his son through decay, as the word tells us. No, he has risen indeed. And God was faithful to Jesus, and God will be faithful to you. Let me ask you today, do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted him as Lord and Savior? Have you, have you recognized that he is who God says he is? And if you have, if you're a believer today, do the age that we're living in, do the circumstances of your life have you doubting God? Have you discouraged? You say, what can I learn from a list of names? Well, we can learn a lot about the faithfulness of God from a list of names. Because those lists of names point us to stories in the Bible that show us that God is faithful. And just the fact that that lineage, that that, that line ends with Jesus tells us God is faithful and that he'll keep his promises. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ personally, we want to give you the opportunity this morning, of course, always to, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That you need to know that though you're a sinner, God loves you and he sent his son to die for you. That's why the Christmas season is such a big deal for us that we know God took on human flesh so that he could live in our place and die in our place. That the Lord Jesus, the son of God, lived in our place and lived sinlessly and died in our place on the cross, bearing the judgment we deserve for our sins and has risen from the dead and you can have a relationship with a faithful God if you'll receive what Christ has done for you. So if you've never done that, we would, we would encourage you to do so today. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if you've got questions about that or if I can pray with you or for you about that, I would love to do so. Or you can just indicate on your connection card that you've got questions about that or you'd like to make that decision and drop it in the offering plate at the end of our service. And I would love to, to reach out to you this week. If you're a believer this morning, take Take a moment and reflect and and ask God how you can better remember and celebrate his faithfulness this Christmas season. Because if there's one thing the Christmas season tells us that sometimes we forget, it's that God is faithful. Let's pray.